Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Season 3, Episode 4. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Belden. And in this episode, we head down to the big bad city of New York City, virtually. We talked to two urban agriculture specialists with Harvest New York, Sam Anderson and Yolanda Gonzalez. The wide-ranging conversation we had covers a lot of really interesting things that are happening in the city. It's a program that Harvest New York is participating in, and we're really ramping up our efforts down in the city. Yeah, and it's more than rooftop gardens. (laughs) There are some really interesting network mushrooms. Yeah. (laughs) All kinds of good stuff. So that's this episode. My name is Yolanda Gonzalez, and I am an urban agriculture specialist with Harvest New York. And I'm Sam Anderson, and I'm the other urban agriculture specialist uh, with Har- Harvest New York. And you, bo- you both are working in New York City, is that correct? Correct. Uh, we're actually located at 55 Hanson, which is a state building. We're co-located with USDA and Department of Ag and Markets, as well as the Cornell Adventure Center. Can you tell us a little bit about what is urban agriculture and how did you get to be an urban ag specialist? What was your journey that brought you here? So urban agriculture, which is the all forms of agriculture happening within sort of city limits, we are mainly focused on commercial urban agriculture, although we have broadly defined that to mean anyone growing for market or significant distributions, like roughly $1,000 worth on top. There are lots of community gardens in the city. That's sort of the foundation of urban agriculture in, in New York City. There are hundreds of community gardens and thousands of community gardeners. We don't work with them as much just because there are two of us and there are thousands of them, and they, they're also already other folks working with community gardeners. We found 40 or so urban farms that fit our target audience, where they're growing enough that we work with them on production issues and marketing and things that a rural extension agent might work with farms on. Just we're working with a smaller version of what you might find upstate and also some very unique operations, which I'm sure we'll get into. And how did you get into this field, Sam? I grew up on a farm in Ohio, a sheep farm. We don't have any sheep in New York City, much to my dismay, but (laughs) maybe someday. I never quite left farming. I sort of tried to. I went to college and was a journalist, but for an agricultural news company, and then went to grad school and studied environmental policy and land use planning, but all of my case studies were about agriculture. And then I uh, worked at a a farmer training nonprofit um, working with a lot of immigrant and refugee farmers in Massachusetts called New Entry Sustainable Farming Project. Uh, I worked there for five and a half years and um, then came down to New York, worked at the Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture, um, managed the farmer training project there, and uh, then grew vegetables out on Long Island for a season and then uh, started this job in October 2017. So that's my path here. And what about you, Yolanda? How did you end up here? So it was a long and windy story, kind of similar to Sam's, but I actually worked in uh, New York City as a farmer's market manager 10 years ago in 2009 for Grow NYC, and that was sort of my entryway into at least the farmer's market scene and places from work here in New York. And after that, I worked on a few farms and for a couple of nonprofits and decided 
to go back to school for a dual master's in public administration and environmental planning at ESF and Syracuse University. And did my thesis on urban agriculture, taking a closer look at community gardens and what that meant to people and the overall food system. And that sort of helped to gain familiarity and just understand the general landscape of urban agriculture here in New York. After that, I pursued a fellowship with New York State government focusing on lean management. Lean management, if you're not familiar, is basically process improvement, looking at cutting waste and improving efficiency. And while I was doing that, I had kept in touch with the farming community, hosting workshops and tours with different farms in the Hudson Valley, just to get plugged in or continue to be plugged into that farming community upstate. Mm-hmm. And you're from New York? I'm from Long Island, yes. Long Island? Mm-hmm. Cool. You mentioned farmer's market and being connected to the farmer's market program. What percentage of produce being sold at farmer's markets today is actually generated from urban agriculture? Is, do you have a rough idea? I would say out of the 40 operations that we visited, maybe a quarter to a half of them have some type of farm stand. I wouldn't say that they're officially part of a farmer's market in the sense of the larger farmer's market with five to 15 vendors, but maybe they just set up like a small stand on the weekends or during a specific time frame where they mostly just sell their produce. All right. So can you paint me a picture of what does the small stand? So I'm, now I'm picturing a, a city street and I'm, I'm picturing this stand that sort of pops up and all of a sudden there, there are carrots and cucumbers and tomatoes for sale. What does it mean when they set up a small stand? How does that, what does that look like? Something like what you just described, or in the case of Berkman Grange, where it is a rooftop farm, it would be on the rooftop. And so they have signage kind of directing people upstairs. That's very cool. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And just to add to that, it it could sometimes be also added onto a CSA pickup. So let's say there is a small CSA associated with that operation. Perhaps the stand could also take place at the same time as the CSA pickup to sort of invite more people to buy more things and just have it be more of a community-focused event. When did we suddenly start really thinking about urban agriculture as a thing? You know, for decades now, you've had green markets in New York City, and it's always been farmers from the Hudson Valley or from Central New York driving down and setting up stands. When did people in the city start, well, that's a dumb question because they've been doing it in community gardens for a long time, but when did the scale shift to an urban agriculture sort of production basis. What, when did that happen and why? I would say that it's easy to kind of point at Brooklyn Grange and say like once they came onto the scene like probably 10, 11 years ago that they really put the spotlight on rooftop urban agriculture, but there have been a lot of projects along the way. Isabelia, Hattie Carthine, and a few others that have been selling produce as a means to supplement and enrich their existing programming and as an additional source of funding for their organization and their group as a whole. And I'd add that the two different types of urban agriculture that came up or two different, um, well, there's nonprofit, um, a bunch of nonprofits in the city that grow food. They might be selling some or all of what they grow with the proceeds going back into the budget and paying people salaries. And they might be donating some or all of what they grow. But either way, um, farm operations uh, supporting a larger mission, which might be related to 
uh, food access and nutrition, food sovereignty, education, and youth program, community empowerment, workforce development, any number of these things. And so that kind of urban farm, which most of the time would be a diversified vegetable farm, uh, soil-based, those started popping up in the city. And they, some of those have been around for a while, and, and you don't want to mention some of them. Um, but it seems like a number of them came up maybe 10 years ago or so um, in Brooklyn uh, and the Bronx in particular. And there is a community here where people work at different farms and bounce between them and visit the different farms and sort of know about each other. So it feels like out of the nonprofit urban farms, there was a movement um, beyond community gardening. And then also some of the more recent press about urban farming in, in New York has been around private sector startups that are very often hydroponic indoor operations. A lot of times there's some venture capital behind them. There are nonprofits that are hydroponic and there are for-profit places that are outdoor in soil. And Yolanda mentioned Broken Grades is one of them, and we've worked with some others. So it's not mutually exclusive, but some of the more recent press has come from the, a few of the bigger indoor hydroponic startups. Interesting. So again, just you've mentioned Brooklyn and the Bronx. I would imagine that farming in Manhattan is not a very viable thing due to real estate and rental costs and things like that. Is that a fair assumption? That's fair, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are examples, but the closer you get, or, you know, the more dense and the more expensive the area, you have to get it creative. So there's an operation in the basement of a building in Tribeca that, or they have a couple of different basement spaces where they are doing hydroponic herbs for Michelin star restaurants. Hmm. And so these like very specialized uh, operations like that. There are a couple of rooftop operations and some, some nonprofits. We just visited one uh, last week, Harlem Grown, and they have a couple of lots. They're a nonprofit, but they are growing enough that they're distributing it and, I think they sell a little bit, but they distribute it and they have school programming. So there is agriculture in Manhattan for sure. And there are lots of community gardens. The Lower East Side is a central point of activity for community gardens. But the scale is obviously going to be a bit limited given the expense, which yeah. is true all over the city, but just amplified in, in Manhattan. You've mentioned the basement garden with herbs. What are some of the other products that are being produced at urban ag facilities in the city? We have been noticing that it tends to be a lot of cut greens and things that sort of have a shorter growing time. So on a whole, that's kind of what we've been seeing. But there have been a lot of diverse products. There's somebody having a wine production on a rooftop, as well as some folks growing rice and aquaponics. And in some of the distinction sometimes between whether they're for-profit or non-profit, and if they're for-profit, then so all the things that you wanted to mention for make sense because for a for-profit venture because the quicker turnaround, higher value, less space. Some of the nonprofits that look more like a sort of miniature version of a Hudson Valley diversified vegetable farm, sort of like that, except for that big crop selection will often reflect the surrounding communities that they're often located in the community where that's the purpose of the operation. If it's a lot of the grassroots nonprofit, they're engaged with the community. So for example, in a lot of central Brooklyn, there's a lot of Caribbean community. And so You'll find almost everybody's growing amaranth for Kowaloo. Sometimes it's taro, bitter melon, all sorts of hot peppers. That's sort of all over the city. People grow, pretty much everyone seems to be growing hot peppers. Uh, and a lot of collard greens, okra. 
things that don't necessarily make a lot of money per square foot, but they're there because it serves the mission of the farm to engage the community and grow things that the surrounding community wants. Cool. Mm-hmm. We also see folks seeking out more value-added products, so whether that be hot pepper-infused honey or hot sauces that are made from peppers that are grown on their rooftop or salsas and just different value-added products that can add an additional revenue stream and preserve some of what is grown for longer. That brings up the question of, is there anybody making an actual living from farming in the city? That's a good question. Some people say it's an event space with a farm as opposed to a farm that is sometimes used as an event space because at least the farms that are generating enough of an income where they're able to hire on staff, a large part of their budget does come from renting out the space and just the landscape. So whether that be for weddings or workshops or institutional events, a lot of that is helping to supplement and pay for the salaries of the staff. The overarching theme is that you have to get creative to make it work. And so it's very hard to find someone who is making a living just on the sale of produce that they're growing in the city, um, mm-hmm. like as a business. You can find places that are getting close to that or that are making part of a living. But in order to close the gap, because of the expense of setting up an operation in the city, because of scale limitations of farming in the city, and also because of the high cost of living in the city, which is a pretty big factor. In order to close that gap, then usually it means something else, like what you want to saying, um, renting the space. Some places that people just sort of have another job, which is common to rural farms too, of course. Right. Um, and sometimes the, it'll be connected, so the farm might be sort of a proof of concept, and then they'll get paid to put in installations at schools or something like that. Or educational tours. We've seen that a lot with farms lately is a steady income stream from schools nearby who want to take their kids on a field trip or just people in general that are in the city, tourists that want to check out an urban agriculture operation and they're getting charged a certain amount to come visit the farm. So farms are getting more and more creative and diversifying their income stream and trying to make this as sustainable or profitable as they can. Production and marketing are the two areas where Harvest New York provides support to the 40 or so farmers. So what does that look like? One of the main focus areas of mine has been food safety and helping producers navigate this web of food safety. So that whether that be looking into gap certification or becoming FISMA compliant or just understanding what FISMA is, a lot of these terms and these acronyms are new to farmers here in the city. And so helping them navigate what certifications they need to enter into a market or wholesale market or just trying to diversify their sales channels. So that's something that I've been working on through one-on-one consultations and basic introductory workshops and presentations. And some of the stuff I've been working on, a lot of it has been traditional technical assistance, especially for vegetable crops. And a lot of that is related to pests and disease. We've got pretty much all the same stuff as rural agriculture, plus a few things that you maybe don't see as much in rural agriculture. A lot of questions about pests and disease and a lot of questions about soil from people growing in soil. And so I worked on this New York City Agricultural Soil Survey for this past year and continuing it this year, basically going around to the different soil-based sites and getting an understanding of what we're working with. We touched on this a little bit when we were talking about growers producing crops for their local communities. 
as one of the most culturally diverse places in the world, are you seeing a lot of diversity in the people that are getting involved in urban agriculture? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really big part of the work that we do. And that's a big part of the purpose of the project is the fact that they're in neighborhoods that are historically Black or Latino, and there's sort of grassroots projects very often that start up there. And the whole point is to engage other, other folks in the community. We work with a very diverse range of farmers, and that's one of the most defining features of our work. And so it means that a lot of the work we do overlaps with and supports racial justice work. And so that's another thing that we work with quite a lot. And a lot of times it's a matter of we're supporting a project that, you know, that's part of their mission. And we've mostly been taking the approach of trusting that what they're asking for is the best starting place for what we should provide. And so a lot of what they've been asking for has been production and marketing type support. And that's the niche that we've been filling. And so that's a big part of our role is serving the sort of behind-the-scenes support mm -hmm. to help others who are more directly engaged in that sort of work. The urban farms themselves, are they mostly led by people that are specifically growers, or is there a lot of volunteer engagement as well? I would say a large part of them have some type of volunteer management component, like some volunteer program and where the volunteers would be able to harvest a certain amount of produce a week, depending on how many hours they do contribute. So a large portion of the labor force does come from volunteers. But a lot of the operations that we've also been seeing have been able to raise enough funds to hire at least somebody part-time or one full-time grower. So we've talked a little bit about hydroponics. Is there any aquaculture happening and does that fall within your realm? There's some aquaculture. There's one operation in particular that we work closely with called Oco Farms in Brooklyn and another one called Eden Works. And those are the, the two operations primarily. And there's one also on the Upper West Side, Stilson. Oh, right. Water, Cornell employee, yeah. But he doesn't come to us with questions because he's been doing this for 30 years. So. <laughs> right, people go to him for questions. <laughs> are there other methods that are evolving that maybe we don't know about? You know, are there hybrid systems? How are people coping with the space constraints? Mm. Do you have any vertical um, gardening happening, anything like that? Yeah, I would say that's definitely a way that people kind of get around the space issue. And also, just to go back to answer your previous question about sort of innovative growing methods. We've been seeing a lot of um, GEA, Controlled Environment Agriculture, for mushroom growing. Mm -hmm. So a few um, operations popping up, one in particular called Small Hold, where they actually have a decentralized system and they can control the growing based off of these units that supermarkets purchase. So a couple of Whole Foods have actually gone ahead and purchased this unit and it's controlled remotely from this company. So a lot of these companies are sort of pushing this tech aspect, being able to control a lot of the environmental conditions through their smartphones and their iPads and all that technology we're seeing advancing more and more. Huh. And for other sort of space, you're asking about using the small amount of space. And a lot of times it's a matter of crop selection. So a lot of baby greens, leaf lettuce like Bellanova and basil and other herbs kind of stuff a lot of times you might find in, in a high tunnel. In fact, there are some high tunnels here and there in the city and probably more on the way. I can only think of one high tunnel tomato or tomato grower right now, but there might be more coming as well. And then microgreens is another example. Microgreens doesn't have to be very much of a high tunnel, but just a little bit of indoor space. And there are also some folks who we're still sort of breaking in with or still figuring out how we can work with them. The guy who grows wheat grass in a school bus 
and drive it to the Union Square Farmers Market. He's another person who's been doing this for like 20 years, so he's not coming to us with questions. But there are a few other people doing that sort of thing um, here and there in the city. And that's indoor with grow lights and you know hydroponic setup. But again, a quick turnaround, high value for small amount of space. Other than you know, the New York City green markets and the farm stands that we talked about earlier, what are some of the other markets that growers are selling to? Are they getting in supermarkets and things like that? There are some supermarkets that do sell some of the products from the urban farms that we've been working with. In general, they tend to be the smaller stores. So we're located here in Fort Greene. If you walk into Green Grape, they're a great supporter of local foods. They purchase food from Square Roots, which is a container farm out in Brooklyn, Gotham Greens, which is an operation on top of Whole Foods. They tend to be smaller health food stores or co-ops and things like that. And restaurant sales are big, especially as people sort of ramp up production a little bit. Even some pretty small growers you've seen working with restaurants as a way to diversify their market stream. There are a couple other things. There's some catering companies that will specifically look to buy from urban farms. A lot of people do CSAs, as Yolanda mentioned. So I had a question on here. Can New York City ever feed itself? But it sounds like uh, it would be a very rarefied diet, even if it was successful, because there are some things that are just not suited for urban production. Probably. I mean, the, the, the stuff that people are growing, um, it's either right, it's either something that is not super high calorie, but, um, um, but is more aimed at, at maximizing the space. Um, but some of sometimes, especially on on the the store based uh, and and the nonprofit um, operations, uh, some of there there often is a nutritional. Um, it's part of the mission to, to provide healthy food, and so there might again it might it's not necessarily the, where you're going to get the bulk of your calories, but it might be um, you might be able to get you know your daily serving of vegetables uh, mm-hmm. if 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 there were uh, enough. Uh, farms that were focused on on that in particular um, and right. you know yeah like leafy greens um there's lots of kale you could i'm sure you could get all the kale you need from <laughs> urban farms. But, right but if you see um urban agriculture too as a way of piquing people's interest and creating this greater awareness about healthy fresh food um and kind of exposing folks to how food is grown, then you can sort of entice more people to visit farmer's markets where a lot of that food is coming from upstate, or maybe they join a CSA from Long Island or upstate New York in the Hudson Valley. So it's sort of a a way to attract people into eating local and eating fresh food. That's a really important point and a really important part of how we're looking at our work, which is that to look at, uh, farms that are focused on urban or rural that are really focused on production and compare them to some of the smaller mission-driven urban farms and say the production-oriented farm is growing, you know, 50 times as, as much in dollars or in pounds or however you want to measure that. But then if you use a yield or a dollar measurement, then urban farming doesn't look all that impressive a lot of times. There are other measurements where it does look pretty impressive. And one of those would be, you know, the number of um, people who engage with the site, or people who learn about agriculture by interacting with the site. In that case, it's common for a lot of these even very small projects to have thousands of people come through every year. And so there's a really big impact beyond yield and dollar amount. 
So it seems to me that a lot of the efforts, especially of the sort of mission-driven farms, really address food security through awareness and um, getting people involved in agriculture. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? I would. And a large component of that that we've been seeing is it's not enough just to have a community garden or provide physical access or just to say that proximity is the issue, right? Even if a certain operation or a supermarket, let's say, that provides fresh food was in a neighborhood that was food secure, that doesn't necessarily mean that people will be purchasing that fresh food, right? They have to know how to cook it, how to prepare it. Maybe it's not suited to their cultural needs. So there's a lot that goes into that and a large component of that is some type of nutritional component. So cooking classes, health education, just adding on and realizing that it's all these different components and not just one, not just proximity and not just physical access. Um, one is, what's a typical day like for you guys? You know, how do you, how does a, an urban ag specialist spend their time in the city? I, I mean, there is no typical day. Um, uh, yeah, we're both sort of laughing. Um, there is no typical day. Uh, I suppose in the wintertime, we spend more time in front of the computer. But the summer, we... Um, uh, I, I guess I'm trying to think of like a day that I can pinpoint, but it's, everyone is so different. Um, yeah. yeah the, I guess uh, in the summer, we do a lot more field visits just because there are a lot of people who, are, um, who aren't growing as much in the winter, a lot of outdoor growers who are more focused on summer. So we get out more then, but um, we do field visits in the winter too. I mean, last week we... Um, we went to, well, okay, so last week we went out to uh, a place where we're going to have a field trial next year and, and it took some soil samples. So we're going to do a, um, our first sort of little research um, trial um, testing uh, elemental sulfur as a, as a way to bring down pH because it tends to be a little bit high in most of the imported soil. So we went out and got some samples. What else did we do? Which is always fun because bringing a you know field probe and carrying around Ziploc bags of soil, people just tend to look at us like oddballs on the <laughs> <Yeah>. subway. <laughs> so you hop, you hop on the subway with your gear and you, and you head to wherever you need right, to go. Right, right. Yeah, we do. Part of the trick of how to characterize our day to day work is that we have to be sort of generalist and specialist at the same time. Specialist because of urban agriculture's landscape being different from rural agriculture and generalist because there are all these different types of operations within urban agriculture. That's a sort of part of how our, our day-to-day can be so varied where one day we're talking to somebody about cut flowers and the next day we're talking to somebody about aquaculture or they're talking to us about it. And so, yeah, it's always an adventure. Before we close, what are some of your hopes for the future of urban ag in the next year or beyond? Broadly, our hopes have to do with people being able to keep going. There are sort of existential challenges a lot of times for operations ranging from land tenure, just funding, and that's for nonprofits and for profits, there's sort of ongoing funding challenges. One thing that we're, we're trying to work on is sort of some community building stuff. So there's some divides between different communities within urban agriculture here and to find ways to connect people um, across different sort of types of urban agriculture. For me, I'd love to see Cornell really make its mark and really solidify its presence here in the city. And 
a lot of times we still go out to operations and people are like, oh, we didn't know that you were here. Oh, I wish I knew that you guys were here. Or like, I could have used your help a couple months ago or whatever it is. And so we really want people to know that we're here, that we are a resource and that we're looking to help in any way that we can. And if we can't directly help, that maybe we can go down the hall and consult with USDA or Ag and Market to ask Cornell Food Venture Center and point them in the right direction so that they ultimately get the support and assistance that they need. Thank you for listening to Extension Out Loud, brought to you by Cornell Cooperative Extension. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell, with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Please give us your feedback through our listener survey and sign up for our mailing list for notifications about new episodes. Links to both of these can be found on our SoundCloud page. Or by visiting extensionoutloud.com. Oh, really? Yes. Oh.